Have you been paying attention to the words of the songs that we have been singing so far this morning and this emphasis that, that we have had that our righteousness is not something that we drum up within ourselves. It is something that we receive freely from Jesus Christ. Now, that righteousness is not only the righteousness for our justification or our right standing with God. That's what we sang about in Jesus, thy blood and righteousness. But it is also your practical righteousness that you express in the living out of your faith as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so, yes, we confess, as we just sang, that sin runs deep, but his grace is more. That grace that we need, not only just to have a right standing with God, but the grace that we need to be expressions of the life of God in this world. As we continue to look at the importance of our name for understanding our calling, for understanding who we are and what our purpose is as God's people, I want us to look at Titus chapter 2 at one of my favorite passages in the scripture for helping us understand the importance of God's grace, not only for salvation, but very specifically for sanctification. Titus chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 11 through 14. The title of the sermon this morning is Grace Covenant training us as disciples of Christ. The key word there, training. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now in the Greek, it assumes that same first line for what it says next. So I'm going to read it in the English like it would be read in the Greek. So, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. For the grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you have not left us in the dark, but your light has shone forth, not only a light that has brought us out of darkness, and into the kingdom of your beloved Son, but a light that continues to shine as your presence continues to speak to us through your word. And so speak to us today so that once again 
reveling in your light, we might go out and be light within a dark world. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, the question we've been asking ourselves for the last few weeks is what is the significance of our name, Grace Covenant Church? By the way, have you done a Google search to see how many other churches in the West Cobb and uh, Paulding counties have the word covenant in them? Not too many. Covenant is one of those words that doesn't get a whole lot of attention nowadays. Someone asked me at one point when, when, when I first got here about uh, coming to um, an area like Dallas, Georgia, East Paulding, which is in a, a different area than the different areas that I've served in before. And they asked me about that. And, and, and what struck me um, about the conversation was the word covenant in our name. And I asked the person, I said, have you ever talked to a visitor? And by the way, if you're visiting today, now that I said this, look out, you might get bombarded. But have you ever talked to a visitor and asked them, you know, how do you connect with the word covenant? It's just not one of those words that gets a lot of attention. It's also not a reality that gets emphasized. Now, it's in our name, so I'm assuming, as one who was not here back at the beginning, that the word covenant was chosen on purpose. And that's why what I have been trying to do is connect this concept of grace with covenant together. And what we have looked at so far is that the importance of a name is that it, it, it expresses something about what you, as someone who was part of Grace Covenant, it expresses something about what you think about the identity, the values, the attitudes, and the actions about what should be present in this body of believers. It expresses something about what you think in terms of the culture of this body of believers. It expresses something about what you think about the community here as this group of believers. The Grace Covenant Church is a church where in its name the emphasis is on the covenant of grace. This covenant of grace is something that we saw in Genesis 3. It's something that God provided us from the very beginning of our fall into sin. And by giving us his grace in the form of a covenant, what we see is that what it means to be a part of God's people and what it means to be a local church, which is a local expression of God's people, is that we have been founded upon and formed by God's covenant grace. A grace that is sure a grace that cannot run out, a grace that God is not stingy with or he, he doesn't change. He doesn't give us grace one time and then not give us grace another time. We are founded upon and we are formed by God's grace. And as we looked at last week, because of our union with Jesus Christ, who was the embodiment of the covenant of grace, come in history in his incarnation, we are absolutely, completely, and totally filled 
by God's grace. We're founded upon, we're formed by, we are filled with. There is not one ounce of God's grace that has been left out because it was all embodied in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we, as those united to him, have the fullness of the Christ dwelling within us. Not only you as individuals, but we as a community. Founded upon, formed by, filled with. Now, what we're looking at today in, in uh, Titus chapter 2 is one of the most important F's. And I didn't mean for this to all be F's, but it just worked out. We're founded upon, we're formed by, we're filled with. We are fueled by God's grace. Now here within Titus chapter 2, we have this presentation of God's grace. It is a twofold presentation of what God is doing with and through his grace within this world, through Christ, in and through his church. And the first one is one that we would naturally associate with grace, that the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation. That is one that we tend to think about. We tend to associate grace with salvation, grace with being saved, grace with becoming a Christian. It's by God's grace that I am what I am. By the way, and we don't have time to go on into this, and this is, like I said, one of the reasons I was excited about Trey. It's the grace of God appearing for salvation for all people. That means not just us in this room, not just us who are in the different churches meeting together this morning here in East Paulding and West Cobb. It's the us of the body of Christ throughout the world where God is calling in some from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that part of the name Grace Covenant, part of what that means is that we understand it's not just about us. It's not just about Americans or Georgians or what do you call someone from Paulding County? A Paulding-ger. <laughs> I have no idea. A cobber? That's even worse. But is that who we are? Or are we Christians that have been drawn from, out of, every tribe, tongue, and nation, and put together in the body of Christ, in the kingdom of the beloved Son? Now, my point, my emphasis this morning is not upon this. My emphasis this morning is the second point of this presentation of God's grace. It's not just God's grace appearing for salvation for all people. It is a grace that trains us as God's people. And this is where we don't naturally tend to connect grace with sanctification. We'll connect grace with salvation, We'll connect grace with forgiveness of sins. Like when we confessed earlier, individually and corporately, we connect the idea of God's grace will forgive me for my sins. We, we tend to connect grace with a lot of passive realities within the Christian life. We don't tend to associate grace with the active reality 
that grace is not just there for us, it is at work in us. It is doing something. Grace is active. The people to whom Paul is writing this letter with the letter written to Titus is a church or churches that are on the isle or island of Crete. And there is a big problem. The culture from which these new Christians have been called out of is a horrible culture. But the bigger problem is that even though they've been called out of it, they haven't left it behind. And the church or churches on this island are all characterized by the values, the attitudes, the actions, the culture, the community of unbelieving Crete. Paul tells us very clearly in verses 10 and through 13 in chapter 1 that there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, he is here going to cite a philosopher. Trey has a degree in philosophy. You can ask him who it is. I'm just totally joking. If he knows this off the top of his head, that's, oh, that's almost, a, that's, oh, I, don't, I don't even want to fill, fill in the blank there. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Now, why does he say that? Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith. Now, what he then goes on to do, by the way, is he then starts to walk through some very specific ways in which these values, attitudes, and actions of lying, being beastly, and being gluttonous are expressing themselves in the Christian communities on Crete. He says that there, that there are believers, and this is the big picture, there are believers who are claiming to be followers of Jesus Christ, but they still look like Cretans. They act like Cretans. Their values are the values of Crete. Do you see what's happening? And so the reality is that there is a problem within the leadership there are false teachers. There are false professors of faith. There is bad doctrine. And this is causing a problem in the actions and attitudes of older men, older women, younger women, younger men. It is an actions and attitudes and a culture that is expressing itself in a problem within the vocations of how people are expressing themselves in their communities. They are lazy, gluttonous. There is a problem with 
drunkenness. There's a problem with being slanderers, uh, gossipers. They are self-centered, argumentative, unruly, disordered, rebellious, and they're stealing. This is not just the culture of Crete. This is a description of the churches on Crete. They do not, he tells us in chapter 2, they do not adorn or embody, my favorite word, they do not adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Beloved, they are consumers of Christ. They are not disciples of Christ. Now, one of the reasons this is so important for us today, especially if we are going to highlight grace as being a chief identifier of our identity, our values, our attitudes, our actions, our culture, our community. If we're going to do that, one of the things that we have to be aware of is that through the history of the church, there have been some who have emphasized grace to mean that because all righteousness is provided by Jesus Christ, there is nothing left for us to do other than just sit back and wait for his return. And that means discipleship, and by the way, I was taught this at my first Bible college. Discipleship is not a requirement for a follower of Jesus, which is weird. That's saying discipleship is not a requirement for a disciple. Those two words, I think, are connected. But what they taught was that salvation is required, grace is required, discipleship is an added bonus. Free grace. And there have been so many of these movements through the history of theology that I don't have time to tell you about them all. This is, by the way, one of the more recent expressions uh, was in the teaching of Zane Hodges out of Dallas Theological Seminary, which led John MacArthur to write his book on lordship salvation. And guess what MacArthur does? By trying to correct a problem about this wrong emphasis in teaching about grace, he creates a bad problem and bad teaching about lordship. He takes the opposite position. Rather than allowing the nuance and balance of Scripture to inform. And so we don't want to fall into this free grace movement where grace means that we're saved, we're good, and so we're just going to hang out until Jesus returns. But it also doesn't mean that to respond to that error, that we have to have some form of guilt-ridden or shame-driven sanctification. Because the text clearly tells us this morning that it is grace for salvation, it is grace for sanctification. It is grace that fuels your discipleship. The believers on Crete are embodying the culture of their island, of liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons in their callings, their purpose, their values, their relationships. You can hear Paul wanting to say to them, are you Christians or are you you Cretans? Are you 
Cretans who are Christians, or are you Christians who live on Crete? I would put the same question to us. Are we Americans, Georgians, or are we Christians? Are we Americans who happen to be Christian, or are we Christians that live in America? What is it that is forming and shaping your values, your culture, your community as the disciples of Jesus Christ? Here's another question for you that may help you kind of figure out where you stand on this. God clearly calls us in Deuteronomy 10 that we read earlier that part of what it means to be a follower of God, part of what it means to be someone who has been redeemed out of bondage and slavery to sin is that we are supposed to love and take care of those who don't have fathers, those who don't have husbands. And even more so, we're supposed to love Feed, clothe, take care of the sojourner. Not just those who are around us because they're natural citizens. Remember, God's saving from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And sometimes, beloved, he doesn't just send us out to them, he brings them to us. And we are called to love the sojourner, to feed and to clothe. And we're to do this because we were sojourners before God saved us. And if you remember from our sermons in Peter, we are now sojourners here on earth as representatives of the best of the values, attitudes, actions, culture of the heavenly places. Our church is not to be characterized in our identities, our callings, our mission, our purpose, in the way we relate to one another, the way we relate to the outside world, is not to be formed, founded upon, filled, or fueled by the realities of America. Or if we lived in Egypt, it wouldn't be based on Egyptian culture. And if we lived in England, it wouldn't be based on English culture. And you can fill in the blanks from there. And so look what we are told to do as God's people, as those who have grace within us, where that grace is actively forming us and shaping us. We are told that we are to renounce and then something else. It's really interesting. But the pattern here is the same pattern that we talked about in Peter. It's the negative pattern, remove, renounce, take away, do away with, denounce, right, deny. These negative things, put off. And then the positive side, we are to put on. We are to wear. We are to be clothed with. We are to promote. We are to be. We are to become. And that's what's set up here. There is the negative side, renounce. There is the positive side. And in the positive side, there is no explicit verb provided in the Greek. And so the structure 
of the syntax tells us two things. We are to renounce something right now in order to be something right now in order to become in the future what we are already accounted to be in Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to fill all that in. Renounce. We are to deny, we are to disown ungodliness, wickedness. We are to renounce it. We are to disown it. It is uh, the presentation, the picture here is that when you are acting or when your attitude is shaped by, when your values and all these things are marked by wickedness, you're owning something that is not yours to own. They were owning a Cretan culture that was not theirs to own. They were to disown the Cretan culture and they were to own the culture of the heavenly places. They are to renounce, they are to disown ungodliness and they are to denounce, they are to disown worldly passions. And the word worldly here as I have said many times since I got here, is not a word that means inherently sinful, right? He just talked about what's inherently sinful, right? You put off ungodliness. You put off wickedness. That's the explicit sinful stuff. But there is also stuff that is not inherently sinful or wicked that we are to disown. It is worldly passions. It is desires that come from this world in its fallen state. This is why, by the way, he mentions next that we are to wait and do this as those who are waiting for the fullness of who we are in Christ to come when Christ returns. He's pointing us to that in order for us to be shaped by that now. So we are to disown the cultural values and attitudes and practices and things that come from this world. And instead, we are to enact, we are to express, we are to be, and we are to become what is true of the world from which we come, the world to which we are headed. And what does that mean? Well, presently it means for us that we are to be self-controlled, living according to good sense. This is what the Greeks talk about in terms of temperance and moderation. Is our culture in America marked by temperance and moderation? Or is it marked by excess? Is it marked by having more than is needed? Is it marked by not sharing what you have because you are accumulate, accumulating for yourself? We are to be upright. And the word here is just righteousness. It means we are to express the righteousness that has been credited to us in Christ. So that credit of righteousness that God gives us doesn't just bring us salvation. It shows us what we are to be because it is what we will be forever when Christ returns. And so we are to be now what we will be then. In other words, you are to be becoming what you are already accounted to be in Christ. We are to be godly. This idea here is that we are to be devoted to God in such a way that there is not a hypocrisy between what we confess 
and what we do. It doesn't mean have all the right words, but then live however you want. And this term in, in, in the Greek culture was not a term that was uh, uniquely religious. It was a term that had to do with, well, if you say you believe X, well, then live it out. Whether, whatever, whatever, whether it's about music or carpentry or eating at all-you-can-eat chicken wing buffets, whatever it is, if you believe something about that, then you should live in a way that expresses it, that embodies it. For Paul, he specifically is talking here about our devotion to God, claiming to be followers or disciples of Jesus Christ. If we're going to claim to be disciples of Jesus Christ, then our lives are to reflect discipleship. And here's the thing. It would be real easy for you right now on the basis of some of what I said to maybe feel guilty about something. Well, I, you know, I really don't do that. Or you know what? I really haven't been all that consistent. And the response can be that because I'm feeling guilty, what I need to do is do something differently to alleviate the guilt. Or because I'm feeling shameful, or, or, or I feel shameful or feel shamed, that the shame should drive me to do something differently so that I don't have to feel shame. Beloved, that is not what he is saying Christian discipleship is. What he is saying Christian discipleship is, is not a guilt, a guilt or shame-fueled sanctification. It is a grace-fueled sanctification. You're going to feel guilty because you will still sin. But the response is not to do something within yourself to deal with that guilt. It is to go to God and be renewed in what, you, what he has already done for you for that guilt in Jesus Christ. And then, because of being renewed in who you are in Christ, then striving in the grace that God provides to reflect Christ more consistently in how you're living. You see, what we tend to do, whether it is just because we don't think about it or whether we have a bad view of grace or an incomplete view of grace or an overinflated view of lordship or whatever you want to call it, what we tend to do is leave Christ out of the daily walk. And what Christ wants us to do is focus more and more and more in a conscious way with every hour or every minute as we just sang ago, and Lord, I need you, in knowing that in every second of the day for you to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and to put off the things of this world in order to embody the things of the world to come, it is going to happen because you are cultivating God's grace and that that grace is working within you, training you to, to be like a parent who is raising you to become more mature in what you confess to be and what you are accounted to be in Jesus Christ. Grace, 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 grace. 
as a church with the name Covenant of Grace. We are a church that is founded upon, formed by, filled with, and fueled by God's grace, which means that we take discipleship seriously, but not by guilt and shame. I'm not going to stand up here in the pulpit and try to make you feel bad about yourself in order to motivate you to do something differently. I am going to, with great joy, put Jesus Christ before you so that you see who you are in him and then do something, feel something, express something, embody something different. And not just you as individuals, but us as a church. So that the culture of this church would be a culture of grace. And that culture of grace driving us to be serious about holiness, to be serious about worship, to be serious about evangelism, to be serious about discipleship, that we, like the Christ who is in us, would be zealous for good works. Grace Covenant is a church in which the covenant of grace defines us in our callings, in our culture, and in our community. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we would be nothing without you. We would be separated from you. We would be alienated from you. We would still live in darkness. And we would be characterized by curse. And yet in your grace, you are saving those who are in darkness and drawing them into light, not because they are worthy, but because you are loving. And you are doing this, Lord, throughout this world, throughout history. And you have given us the privilege of being one with you in your love, in your life, and in your mission. And so help us, Lord, to be filled with your grace as those who are founded upon it and formed by it. But Lord, help us to cultivate grace as the fuel that drives us to, be, to, to, to become more consistent in our discipleship, embodying the culture and the purposes of the heavenly places, and learning the freedom that comes in Christ to deny and to renounce and to let go of the values and the culture of this world in order to show them that there is something so much more beautiful and better than the chains to which they give themselves, which keep them from your love. Father, give us a passion that comes not from this world, but from the world to come, to be a church of grace. It is in Jesus' name that we pray.
Amen.